Welcome to the Living the Writing Life podcast. My guest today is Marianne Marazzi, PhD. Unlike most of my guests thus far on Living the Writing Life, Marianne is not a writer by trade or passion. Rather, she's an Egyptologist with a doctoral degree in classics, ancient history, and archaeology slash Egyptology, who has 27 years of experience working at archaeological sites in the U.S., Italy, and Egypt. She's taught art history and world cultures at colleges and universities. She edits academic journals and has written numerous articles for educational publications and children's magazines. But when we met at Apple Tree Books in Cleveland, our wide-ranging conversation illustrated the commonalities that existed between our two professions, since we are both engaged in uncovering truths and sharing knowledge. That alone made her a good choice for the podcast. But even better, she's so darn interesting and engaging and full of fascinating tidbits that I could have talked with her for hours. Not wanting to keep her to myself, I invited her on the show to talk about her work as an Egyptologist and how it is about discovery, what is found, what isn't found, which is a discovery in and of itself, who those people were and how they lived, and the correlation between that and fiction writing, which is about uncovering the truth about the characters and the surprises that can result from unexpected finds. Welcome to the show, Marianne. Well, thank you, Nancy. It's really a joy to be here. It's well, I think always... this is... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's that's all right. Please. I, I was just going to say, I think this is just going to be so interesting. And actually, what I want to start with is your business card, which you gave to me that day. And mm-hmm. it has two hieroglyphs that together are the name of the goddess. Do I pronounce that? Seashat? Seshat. 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 Okay. The patron goddess of... Ha writing, research, and record-keeping. So why did you choose those glyphs for your card? (laughs) Well, for years and years, I have had a fascination with what I call the lesser-known or the under-gods. Not chthonic deities which come from under the earth, but more like the underdogs of the literature and, and religious world. You know, who are they? Why aren't they more powerful? And, you know, what? why exist at all? If, if you can't be the top god, then why? And so I, I've always been fascinated with that kind of concept. And also, I was raised with a reverence for the written word. Words are powerful, and they're sacred, and they shouldn't be wasted. And the concept of a deity who is in charge of that, if you will. I mean, you know, in the United States, historically, we have these concepts that we personify, right? Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty. And yes, she's a statue. And yes, she's the whole, give me, you're tired, you're hungry. But she's also a physical embodiment of the concept of freedom and liberty. So Seshant is basically the physical embodiment of writing and what better concept what better symbol for someone who deals with the written word than the goddess of writing 
And so I've always been drawn to that kind of a concept of physical embodiments of ideals. And so she was perfect. Plus, you know, they're really pretty pictures. <laughs> so I went with that. And, you know, writing tends to be black and white. So pretty much everything I do, everything that I have my logo on, if it's a watch or a jacket or a, a bracelet or whatever, it's black and white. Oh, absolutely. I, I love everything you said, especially about the importance of writing and now I hope I can find maybe a little statuette of this goddess that I can put on my desk because I'm big on anything that has to do with writing. <laughs> so They didn't make statues of Seshop. Oh. She's in relief carvings on walls all over the place. She's in relief carvings on statues. But we have yet to find anywhere in Egyptian archaeological work a statue of Seshat. There are lots of statues of Thoth, who is the god credited with creating writing and giving it to mankind. But Seshat, not so much. Huh. Well, they've overlooked that. Shame on them. Well, yeah, but that's okay. There's lots of pictures of her and lots of relief carvings, and those are nifty to hang on walls. Oh, yeah, this is true. Yeah. Well, you know, all this leads logically to the next question. Why did you choose archaeology as a profession? You know, it's funny. People ask me that all the time. And sadly, I have to say it is not my profession because I don't get paid for it. All of the work I have done, nine countries, three continents, digging things up, writing about it, researching it, it's all volunteer. I've had to have four academic degrees, two professional certifications, and I've been forced, and I mean that literally forced, to learn an academic proficiency in reading and writing nine languages, and it's all volunteer. So my profession, no, but it is my passion. And the discovery of what people left behind and why, also what they didn't leave behind and why what's missing gives us as much information as what's actually there and so that's that's the exciting part and that's the why what i've done is a profession you know to pay the bills keep the lights on keep food on the table that's been literally survivalism i've worked in book bindries i've worked in direct mail production plants I've been the, the coffee expert, quote unquote, at a, a low level uh, version of like Pottery Barn. Okay, that's, that's a small chain. It doesn't exist anymore back home. Um, I've worked in retail. I've worked in uh, hardware stores. I, you know, whatever I could do to earn enough money to keep the lights on. So that's the profession aspect in addition to teaching at the university level and you know, all that other wonderful stuff. But, but archaeology is a passion. You know, that, that is, is another, I think, commonality, not only between you and me, but between you and just about every other author that I've interviewed, which is that we don't, contrary to what non-writers and non-authors think, we, it, it's very hard to make a living writing books. It because, is, even working in publishing. 
Everyone thinks they're the next JK Rowling and they're going to get a million dollar advance. And that's the exception, not the norm. Exactly. And, and the other thing people don't take into account is like all the costs involved, whether you are traditionally published or indie, all the costs just involved in marketing in that. I mean, it is a steady stream of outgo. So like you, I do a bunch of other things. Although all my all my income producing activities are still in writing. I'm a copywriter by trade. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, that is how I make my living, pay the bills, keep the lights on, fix the computers. But, yep. you know, if if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would just write fiction until you shovel dirt over my face. You know, that's that is my passion. But anyways, um yeah, you you know, uh, and and I do as I was when we were talking, and and later on as I was thinking about this interview, I was thinking that, you know, as a fiction writer, um, what I do is I create characters from the bits and pieces that exist in my mind, and a lot of that is just things you pick up, you know, the scraps of conversations you overhear at an airport or you know, when you happen to catch a glance between two people and your brain just starts going. Okay. And mm-hmm. then, and then we make it up from that point. And then I wondered if that's similar to what you do, because you find as an archeologist, you find these bits and pieces of people who have gone before you. And from that, I mean, they're not there to talk to, they're not there to ask questions. So you, you have to actually kind of deduce how they lived, what they cared about, what they wanted, or am I stretching the analogy a little too far? Yes and no. Um, deduction is different from imagination. So you deduce information based on the evidence that you see. What's there, what's missing, what makes sense. The imagination takes you off into what might be, but what probably isn't or wasn't or didn't. And archaeology is something that people call a soft science because there's hard science behind it, but you have to be very careful about what you say happened. You know what? So with archaeology, there are an awful lot of indicates, likelihoods, possibilities, examples, limits, but no exacts. And then we have to be very careful about how we say those things so that we don't put our ideologies, our knowledge into the minds of the ancients. You know, I can't say, oh, the ancients left behind this lamp in an area that we've decided was sacred, so they must have thought. I really can't say that. What I can say is I found pieces of a lamp in an area where I also found a votive figurine. So it's possible this was an area that was sacred. I can't say, you know, I, I can't, oh, this is where the priests came and did this and they spoke this way and they, without evidence, I can't say they did something. Now, as a fiction writer, you can say that and you can make up fabulous stories and you can infer wildly. And that's wonderful. And that's, you know, the realm of historical fiction. 
which is so fun in the writings of Elizabeth Peters and Michael Jackson, Ellis Peters, and and on it, an infinitum for these things. But as an archaeologist, I can't say that. Um, so there's, I went and looked up an example to give you an idea of the different writing styles. So is it okay if I read you a paragraph? Sure, from, go uh, for it. Okay. All right. So this is from an article called the Cavusi Course Wares, which is a, a type of pottery from the American Journal of Archaeology, April 1993, volume seven, number two, page 287. Okay. So as a scholar, I, I never want to be accused of plagiarism. Got right? it. Because that can get me sued, right? So language, what I can infer, what I can deduce versus my imagination. So the paragraph says this. For example, KTS Locus 50 in an LM1 site, see figure 27A, fabric type 1 is characteristically predominant. MM12 occupation is suggested by traces of fabric types 4 and 6. For all intents and purposes, especially those of regional survey, Locus 50 is a multi-period site founded in Middle Minoan with continued habituation in MM3LM1. By way of contrast, another multi-period site is KTS Locus 16, see figure 27B, which shows substantial evidence for continuous activity from EM to LM1. A comparison of the graphs, figure 27, of loci 50 and 16 shows vastly different relative percentages of the various courseware fabrics, which may be explained by the different functions of the two sites. That's what I write. That's what I read every single day when I'm helping an author do something. But for the kind of writing you do, that says absolutely nothing. It's gobbledygook. It's jargon. It's gibberish. And were I not trained as a classicist in addition to an Egyptologist, I would think that was also gibberish because the jargon, the jargon is sub-industry specific. But basically what that paragraph says is for a particular time from the early Minoan period to the first section of the late Minoan period, there is a change in the type of low-level, mass-produced pottery that shows up. Yeah, it's boring, it's horrible, <laughs> but it's specific. Now, if, we're, you know, if I were a fiction writer or if I were wanting to make this interesting to the mass to want to buy my book and, and think it's fabulous, I would have to actually throw all of that out and literally talk about pottery manufacture and courseware is something that has a lot of a lot of byproduct in it big pieces of pottery mixed into the new clay that sort of makes the clay expand it's like adding breadcrumbs to ground beef to expand your ground beef and stretch it and the types of that pottery that show up it's more in the early period and it tapers off as you get to the later periods where other things begin to show up more often. That's what an archaeologist calls seriation dating. 
you have a lot of stuff in a certain time period. And as that tapers off, you get more of something else. And that shows you that time has passed. Oh, that's interesting. It's interesting when you explain it in layman's terms, but you can't really make a romantic historical fiction anything out of it because all it talks about is how much pottery of a certain type shows up in relation to how much pottery of other types shows up. Mm -hmm. But that's the jargon and the industry-specific stuff. Which I gather you have to have because of the nature of the kind of work that you're doing. I mean, it's it's got to be factual. It's got to be like that old TV detective show, Just the Facts, ma'am. Yes. Can't remember. Oh, you know. Dragnet. Yes. How could I have forgotten that? Jeez. Dragnet. Yeah, you know. During Harry. No. Um, shoot. It was the actor who played Harry Potter. Uh, not um, Sherman Potter. Oh. Uh, <sighs> Now we're going to do this. I've done this too many times on mm-hmm. interviews where we go down a rabbit hole and it's mm-hmm. neither one of us can remember till long after. That's oh, well. Well, you know what? We'll, we'll Jack tell you. Webb. There was Jack Webb. Jack Webb. Yep. He was he was the main detective. And I can't remember the other guy, but I can see him in my head. Yep. Yep. Well, that's is, okay. Which is certainly dating me, if not you. Uh, well, no, I, I think it dates both of us because <laughs> I remember those things too. But you know what? Your your viewers or your listeners will say, oh, yeah, I got to look that up. Yes. And they'll be so excited when they find the name. And then hopefully they'll go up and look up Dragnet if yes. they're too young to know who those people and things are. So there. we're expanding culture. That That's it exactly. Our little tidbits. Yep. Um, I, I remember one of the things that that you pointed out when we were talking at Apple Tree was that despite the differences in culture and time frames from ancient times to now, that we all really want the same thing. We want food and shelter, safety, a better life for ourselves and our children, kind of like that hierarchy of needs type thing. Mm-hmm. Um is how do you determine what they wanted though? How how do you determine what was important to them? Or is that not part of the process? It's certainly part of the process when when a fiction writer is creating characters because we have to know what drives them, what they care about. But is that something that is a part of your discovery, your work? Yes for different reasons it's always human curiosity to say why did they leave this behind but they didn't leave any evidence of that behind um why do they why did they build buildings this way if there are any buildings standing from the time period and it's it tends to be the remnants of the society that give us clues, but rarely do they paint a whole picture. And so we have to infer from the evidence we have and from the evidence we don't have. And I know that sounds really odd, but if we, if we put it into a fiction writing idea, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of murder mysteries. So I tend to look at things from a murder she wrote kind of idea, right? Were there fingerprints on the weapon or not? 
And why? Is it because the murderer didn't touch that thing or the murderer wiped them off? No, there's, so in archeology, span we get most of our information from the middens, the trash pits. And trash pits are created by the things we leave behind. So we get that information, but it also makes us pause and wonder, why aren't we finding X in the middens? Okay. Is it because that's something that was so special to them that they couldn't throw it away? And that's where some archaeologists go down the ritualist ideology of, well, if it, if it isn't there, of course, it was sacred, so it couldn't be thrown out. Or is it something that's simply so special to the individuals that they took it with them as they moved? You know, or, you know, this is grandma's favorite teacup. And it's broken, but I can't throw it out, so I glue it back together. And that's why it's not in the trash pit. And so that's why we have to be very careful about the questions that, as archaeologists, we ask. And the information that we look for. Because we have to make sure that we use those limiting uh, words to help us construct the story and it's not wildly inaccurate. So we get glimmers. And, and I think when we were talking, I used the example of the jigsaw puzzles. The further back in time you go with history, it's like adding more and more jigsaw puzzles that we don't have all the pieces for. And the time period that I work in, which is give or take 1300 to about 1100 BC, I liken that to the things I find. It's like putting together five 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzles, mixing them up, and then throwing away seven eighths of the pieces. Now, you find the pieces, how do you put them back together so that you create every picture? You can't. But by virtue of how the pieces were mixed up before pieces went missing, you'll have more complete this picture and less complete that picture. And by how complete a picture we get, we can infer information. And how much information is available to us varies by how far back in time we go. The further back in time we go, the less complete picture we're gonna have. Now, does that answer your question? Does that help you go? Uh, yeah, no, with, that with fiction, fiction writing. Okay, because yeah, it's it it's kind of like I I have a an example that I wrote down here: brewery versus restaurant in an archaeological site. You find a bunch of pots. What's in the pots? Is it roasted grain? Is it remnants of honey? Do we have pots that have a a remnants of liquid inside, but fire on the outside? Is it, is it burned on the outside? Um, do we have animal carcasses? Are they missing? Do we have tables, chairs, cups, plates, or are those missing? So based on what we have, we're going to have pots in both breweries and restaurants because both places heated items, cooked items, mixed things together. But if we don't have 
evidence of animal butchery, of animal carcasses, if we don't have evidence of tables, chairs, cups, and saucers where people might gather, then we probably have one thing rather than the other. And there's no way to say for sure. So we'd write it up and say, based on what we found, it's more than likely we found a brewery based on what's missing. You know, now if we found the tables and chairs and we found the animal carcasses and we found pots with stuff in them or evidence of cooking of fire, then we might have found a restaurant instead of a brewery where people gathered, where people ate rather than where people just produced something. Mm -hmm. And it's, I'm going to sound like a broken record. It's what's there and what's not there that lets you infer the likelihood. And yes, you have to have all that background when you're writing fiction, but it's the language that's used is key for the differences between the two. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, Mm -hmm. and it's funny because as, as you were using, as you were doing that example, it made me think about, you know, when, when we're establishing a setting, you know, we, if, if we want to establish it in such a way that the reader can envision it, it's not only the details we put in that identify what the location is and maybe how it, how it might affect the characters who were there, but also, like you said, what isn't there. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, yeah, I, I can see, although, you know, we are not constrained by facts as fiction writers. Well, we are and we're not, you know, we're still making it up. It, it still has to have some, some relation to reality, but certainly not within the limits of, of the, the, the actual, the reality of what you're dealing with. Well, the latitude that fiction writers have that, academic or scholarly writers do not have is that fiction writers have the freedom to create their own laws and their own reality within the story. So if you've got somebody who's walking six feet off the ground, you can explain it as a difference in gravity, that they have some special power, that uh, it's, it's a dream sequence, that it's a something that we don't have that latitude in scholarly writing. And, and it's fun to be able to do that. The, the problem that I've noticed that some fiction writers have is they start with that, the laws that they create within their own reality. And then halfway through what they're writing, they forget about that. And then they create something that's contradictory to the rules they've set up. So fiction writers are still constrained by those rules, but fortunately it's rules they make up for themselves. And that's fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that can be fun. But but you're right. You cannot, if you're establishing a, an environment, then you have to remember and you can't violate the rules you made for that environment, even though it's an environment you made up because yes. that's, and the readers, oh my gosh, if you do that, you will hear from the readers who say that that doesn't make any sense, even though the entire thing is not real, but Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it's still, you're right. We are still constrained by whatever reality we're creating because there are rules. Yes. You know, the, the other thing too, I was thinking is, you know, you, you spend a lot of time on the dig, a lot of the, 
the physical side of it, but then you've got to document your finds. You've got to write up all those wonderful presentations that mm-hmm. are in many cases full of jargon that I wouldn't understand, but, you know, also, um, and also write up, I'm sure pieces to interest people that we hope will, will, you know, underwrite the next big dig or whatever. So um, what I'm wondering is, you know, how, how do you do that? I mean, did you have special training to learn how to turn? Because as, as a writer, I mean, there there are things I can write really well. And then there's things I wouldn't touch with the 10 foot pole because I know I'm not any good at it. So is this a, a, a particular talent that you have? Did you Did you have to undergo years of training to be able to turn what you found into something that is going to pass muster academically and also, you know, with the people that are going to be paying for all this? I I would love to tell you that, yes, there's a course taught at every university at the freshman level that tells you how to change text from technical to general or from from jargon to layman's uh, phraseology, but there is not. And it simply is something that I think should be taught everywhere because it's basic communication. But I have dealt with scholars for so many years who can talk about what they know really well, but they can't talk to the the underwriters or the donors or simply the lay people that they want to get excited to create some sort of grassroots support movement. And it's, it's mind boggling for me because for me, it comes naturally to go from the technical to the less technical. And for other people, it doesn't. And there is no training course that you can do for that. It's talking to people. It's trial and error. And it's talking to as many people from as many different walks of life as possible. And I get in trouble for that on the dig site. Um, if I'm, uh, you know, up near where the people can see me, because most of my work in Egypt, I am at the bottom of a shaft under a mountain made of limestone, which is a type of stone that cleaves. So if there's an earthquake, there is a very real possibility that the mountain will collapse on top of me. And and that is not lost on me, the, the danger level that's on a daily basis that I go through. But... I go up to the top of the shaft where I can get, you know, even light, sunlight, whatever, and I'm photographing something. And inevitably, there are tourists who want to talk to me. And I will spend 10 or 15 minutes and I will answer their questions. And my dig director, Dr. Salima Ikram, she will come up and she will say, stop talking, continue working. We have a limited amount of time. We have a limited amount of funding. Don't talk to these people. And I say to myself, but you never know. Which one of those people is going to say, my God, that's fabulous. Could you use an extra $100,000 to finish your work and get it published? You never know. (laughs) You never know. So I I try very hard to balance that level of I've got to focus and I've got to do work versus I've got to be 
personable and polite and figure out how to tell these people what I'm doing without a violating an embargo on research that hasn't been published. So it can't be widely disseminated and B keeping people interested enough that somebody goes home and says, Oh yeah, I want to look that up. Maybe they can use an extra 500 bucks, which yes, we can always use an extra 500 bucks or an extra 20 bucks or whatever. <laughs> if you've got bags of cash in the back, Yes, we desperately need it. And if you need a tax write-off, yes, we'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is so Notice I'm like... not giving you a website, so nobody does that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I think perhaps one of the reasons why you are so successful at doing that is because it comes across so clearly your passion for the work, your passion for for getting the for the understanding of what you find and then sharing it with people and and when a person is passionate about things then even if the person you're talking to only understands 50% of what you're telling them but they always grasp your feeling for it and how you think it's so important and so then then to them, they're thinking, then it must be important. This, this woman is so passionate about it. So it must really matter. And maybe I need to understand it a little bit more so that I can understand why she's so passionate about it. Yeah, you asked me once about how do I get that to come through? How do I get my passion to come through in the academic writing? And the short answer is you can't. The only place I can get the passion through is the face-to-face -face contact. Because I do become animated and I do get excited about the boring little every day. I mean, we found in the surface level at this dig site, we were finding champagne corks and broken pottery and newspapers, which have absolutely no excitement for your average person. And yet... I tell you, but we found the sardine cans that the original excavators left behind. And isn't that amazing? Because we know what they like to eat because they and, and obviously it is an ancient because the ancient Egyptians didn't have canned sardines. So it's the only place that passion can come out is by talking to people. Right, right. No, and it and it did. I mean, clearly you and I went on and on and on at the bookstore, you know, we darn near closed it down. Um, I, I know one of the things you, you you referenced when we've been talking now, but also certainly when we were talking at the bookstore, is that you had met Barbara Mertz um when you were at uh which college was it again she, she yeah barbara was a delightful lady i was doing my master's degree at the university of memphis and she came as an invited guest on a murder mystery writers weekend to talk to the graduate students and i had at the time no idea who she was i had never read her books and someone made a comment about someone else, uh, another peer, that it turns out we both knew. And we sat for half an hour exchanging stories about this person. And it was after that that I went and bought my first Barbara Mertz book, or, or Elizabeth Peters book, I should say, and, and had her sign it for me. 
during that weekend. And I had no idea who she was. I had never read her books. And it was only after the, the passion of two scholars talking to each other about something else in their lives did I want to spend the time to go back and figure out who she was and what she'd written. And boy, am I glad I did. Oh, yeah. She was, she was, and it was so funny that you brought it up because I have books both by Elizabeth Peters, where, mm -hmm. you know, the archaeology end of her fiction, but also the stories that she wrote as Barbara Michaels, which, right, um, you know, I, I think I referenced Amy Come Home, which to this day will give me goosebumps every time I read it. But, you mm -hmm. know, what can I say? So I'm, I'm kind of curious. You, you've, you've had, such a fascinating life with all this discovery in that. Do you have any interest in at some point writing novels? Not even close. <laughs> Boy, my that's passion, <laughs> My passion is ancient cultures. I love to read murder mysteries. I love to read um, social commentary. I love to read satire. And I love to read actual history. I love historical fiction. Those things are great. But for me, those are the escape. Okay. And in my life, for me to maintain some small semblance of sanity, I want my escape separate from my passion. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that makes perfect sense, actually, sure. to think about it. Sure. Besides, it, it leaves more stuff for everybody else to do. <laughs> and I'm perfectly happy with that. <laughs> yes, we all can't be on dig sites and write all that archaeology research. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that would not be my skill set at all. Um, you had pri prior to today's conversation, you had sent me um, a photo to actually two photos. One was you you were sitting next to a part of the is it the Festival Stella? Um, yes, let me, you know, had I been better prepared in my brain, I would have had those pictures already up. Um, and of course, I didn't do that at all, but that's okay. The miracle of uh, technology says that I can actually open them and look at them and <laughs> not make anyone think that I'm not concentrating on them entirely on the camera. So well, luckily yes. they're only going to hear you and not see you. Well, well but you know, I, I had looked up um, when you sent me the information, then I looked up a part of your PhD thesis and it was saying that the purpose of these scenes is to aid in the dissemination of knowledge regarding the King's, is a titulary years of rule and number of SD festival as divine gifts from the gods. Um, yes. And, and it's all about uh, documenting information, how they, how the, it was important to the ancients to document it and make sure that, and document it accurately and then make sure that it was shared with whoever was supposed to, or was permitted to, to know about these things. And, and also for the generations that came afterwards, which, you know, with, with things the way they are currently, there is so much information being shared and then so much misinformation. So, it, you know, it just struck me that, you know, 
even back in ancient times, it was important to be accurate, to, to document. I mean, it's what, yes, yes, it's, it's accuracy, but what is the information that is accurate is that question because the ancient Egyptians wanted to document everything. I mean, we have records of famines. We have records of good harvests. We also have employment records that go back to 2000 BC and earlier. We have, for lack of a better term, a, a, like a time card. This employee missed X number of days of work this week and his paycheck needs to, you know, his pay needs to reflect the fact that he didn't work that much. He called in sick a lot. We really don't think he was sick. He's a troublemaker. I mean, they documented all of those kinds of things, but they also documented what they wanted to happen. And that is where these Ished tree scenes come in. And, and you referenced that photograph of me kneeling next to a block. And that is the Pharaoh Ramses IV on that block, standing in front of an Ished tree. And that block, since I was photographed next to it, has been restored to the wall behind me. That's been taken and put back up probably 30 feet off the ground. And these scenes were basically the Pharaoh's wish that everyone perceive him with lots of years of rule as a successful and powerful king with lots of divine gifts. And the figure that you see behind the king uh, on that block, you can see basically an arm from the shoulder down to the hand and another arm from about mid forearm down to the fingertips. That's what's left of a divine figure writing the king's name on the leaves of the tree so that the at the divine level they can document that the king really has the right to claim to be the divine king. And because it's placed in an area where people can walk past and see it, you get that, and, and some of my peers really hate when I use this terminology, but I use it anyway, and somebody can yell at me later for it. It's basically a PR campaign <laughs> to say, I'm the king, the gods have said I'm the king, and look here, I'm going to show you on this, for lack of a better term, billboard. And if it's written down, it must be true, because writing is not only created by the gods, and given to man because it's created by the gods. It has magic. It has a divine power. And therefore, anything that's written down has the ability to be true. Oh, that's interesting. And none of that has changed. <laughs> Look at everything that shows up on billboards on the side of the freeway, everything that shows up on Facebook, on Twitter, on TikTok, on on uh, Instagram, right? We all put up these things. I want to look this way. And so if I sh put it out there to the world often enough, people think it's true. Isn't that fascinating? It's the same thing. <laughs> the only difference is that now all of us regular schmoes can do it 
It's not limited to just the rich and powerful. Wow. But that's exactly what that is. Okay. Yeah. So it's part part of the documentation is factual, like you mm -hmm. reference the time cards, and some of it is aspirational or PR. Sure. Really. <laughs> sure. It is. It is well, yeah, one of my doctoral supervisors used to laugh and say, okay, yes, you can say that in a in an intimate conversation, but you cannot put that in print. That cannot go in your dissertation, that kind of a comment. You have to choose different words and couch it differently. And I would say, yes, sir. And I would write it appropriately. But in a one-on-one -on -one conversation to help people understand, I cannot in good conscience tell you that this is a fact. The fact is that the king had this desire and so had himself displayed this way. The fact is also that this concept of depiction was something that was in the wheelhouse, if you will, of Pharaoh's desires for depiction for more than 1,500 years. The earliest depiction we have of something like this is Thutmose's the first in the early 18th dynasty. And the latest one we have is Ptolemy IV in the second century BC in the Ptolemaic era. And that covers more than 1,500 years. So it was something that people were used to seeing, and it was part of a, a general information visual campaign to say, oh, I know when I see the king in this posture, in front of this kind of tree, with these kind of people standing near him, he's telling me that he was chosen by the gods and he is officially the king. Look, it says so right there on the wall, so it must be true. <laughs> that is so funny but yeah no i understand absolutely yeah. yeah um you know so far we have talked about in in terms of your writing how it how it's geared either for your academic audience or for your your donor underwriter average schmo type mm -hmm. audience do you think it's important for children to learn about past cultures and civilizations Absolutely. I, I think I think we shouldn't limit it to children. I think everyone should learn about what came before because yeah, there's there's that joke, right? Whether you're a Buffy fan or or a, a history fan where people say, you know, if you don't pay attention to history, you're doomed to repeat it. The Buffy version says in summer school. Because, yeah, you wind up repeating history in summer school if you don't pass it the first time. But what came before helps us all understand where we are, who we are, and if we can shine a light on the mistakes we've made as well as the, the good things we've done, our successes, then that helps us to repeat those successes and hopefully not repeat those mistakes. And that's for environmental conservation. That's for political aims. That's for social work. That's for just us being good stewards of humanity. You know, we need to have children understand that there were things like physical dial telephones. And there were periods of time when 
you couldn't just call your best friend. You actually had to walk over and knock on the door and say, hi, how are you doing? Didn't see you at the market today. Are you okay? And that in and of itself in school, in society, in families, needs to be something that children, that middle schoolers, that high schoolers, that college people, that senior citizens, that all of the rest of us in society need to learn and hold dear because that is how we move forward as a successful society. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing I'm thinking too is as children say would read about, you know, people living in the BC area, era, mm -hmm. okay? And they'll think, oh, this has nothing in common with me. And then they read something where they find out, oh, yeah, you know, the, the kids, the kids played with certain things, maybe not what I play with, but kids still played or, or as you get older, people still had, as we talked about before, the same worries, the same concerns. And I'm wondering too, if hopefully that might also bring people, whether they're kids, whether they're adults, to realize there is more that we have in common with people nowadays than we don't, you know, sure. because everybody is so intent on saying, you're different from me, therefore you're, you're bad or you're less than. Yeah, that's something that I used to talk about when I was teaching art history. And I'd talk to my students and I'd say, there's this idea of the us versus them. Whoever we are, we're the good guys because we're us, we're familiar. Whoever they are, they are not us. Therefore, they're unfamiliar. They're bad. We don't mix with them. And it doesn't matter about the melanin in your skin, the gods you choose to worship or not worship, who you choose to love, the clothes you choose to wear. That's all the frosting or, or the sauce that covers the meatloaf, if you will. But the important part of the meal is that we're all the same. We always want the same things. I, you know, I, I've told you, no matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter when we are, we're all the same. And you mentioned things about toys to play with. And I'm sure all of your listeners out there, if they don't have children who've had one of these, they themselves have had one of these, the infamous pull toy. And there's some toy on a string. Sometimes parts of it move when you pull it across the floor. Sometimes it just rolls across the floor. My dad had one. I had one. We find them in ancient Egyptian tombs, pull toys that have a mechanism so that when a wheel rolls, it hits a little lever on something and the mouth of the animal opens and closes as you pull the toy along the string. These things are 4,000 years old. So children are still playing with the same kinds of toys. I mean, today they're all plastic and made in China, whereas... 4,000 years ago, they were made by the parents for the children or by an artisan in the village, but they're the same. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that is that is the most valuable thing that they that the kids, whatever their age, can take away is that there is 
a commonality, a similarity. We are not, yeah. like you said, it's not an us versus them is we're all us. grammatically incorrect but we are very true (laughs) very true but you know hey if Shakespeare could be grammatically incorrect I'm sure other people can too (laughs) just don't put it in a scholarly or academic article right right because someone will point that out yes so I I always have one question that I like to end with and in your case I tweaked it a little bit okay um how do you define success as an archaeologist and an educator in this field for you personally that's that's a nifty question in my life with my experiences I define success as being able to get up in the morning look in the mirror and not hate myself so if I know that I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I don't have something hanging over me where it's, oh, I should have done this. Oh, I really wish I hadn't done that. I mean, we all have those moments, but success in general is if I can look at myself in the mirror and not feel guilty about everything in my life, then I must be doing okay. If I know I brought a smile to someone's face, even if it's just I walk out of a restaurant and I say to someone, that's a really pretty color on you. And they smile. Oh, my thank you. Oh, you know, it was a gift. My husband gave it to me. My daughter gave it to me, whatever it was. I, then I've made their day and that's success. That's a good thing. And that is, that is certainly something that is achievable, you know, by, by any of us, really, if you think about it, I mean, it's, it is, it has nothing to do with money has nothing to do with accolades or awards or anything else. It is really about, about feeling good about what we have accomplished, what we have mm-hmm. achieved. And at the same time, knowing that, you know, we have another day that we can push ourselves maybe a little bit further and make more people smile, make more people happy. Sure. sure. Well, I have loved having you on the show. I knew you would be perfect because you are so passionate about what you do and and about knowledge and about getting the information out there and you know in that respect although you do it in one field and you know I do it as a writer it is still all the same thing so Mm -hmm. you know we it is what drives us it's it's certainly not the money as you pointed out and as I well know it's It's not the money, but it is, it's the excitement. It's, it's the uncovering of, and then the sharing of what we found. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, this has been great. And um, I look forward to coming across you again when, when we are both in the bookstore or so Cleveland's not that far from where I am. So that's true. That's yeah. true. Thank you so much, Nancy. This has been a joy and I hope I didn't put too many people to sleep. <laughs> I don't think that is at all possible. You were you were as entertaining on on this podcast as you were that day. <laughs> but um, but anyways, yes. Thanks thanks for being on the show, and thanks to everyone who joined us here at Living the Writing Life.